You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands was never ceded. Hello and welcome to The Outer Sanctum, a podcast where a bunch of friends get together and just chat it out. It being footy, out being Melbourne from the top spot on the ladder. Is it too soon? I don't know. To pull me into line are two of my Sanctum pals and they'll introduce themselves. Hi, it's Kate Sear. Hi, I'm Julia Kiera. And I'm Tess Armstrong, the one just back in the Ds, kicking them when they're down, which seems harsh, but we've just come off the back of the Queen's birthday game. We are recording this on a Monday, and it turns out it just takes one hot match on a very cold day here in Victoria to just revive my my footy sarcasm. It's just there. <laughs> that my vibes are back, and I'm all about it. And I'm so sorry to Rana, our dear friend who um, was there in the crowd, but the Pies ended up winners by 26 points today, and it was just an awesome match of footy. It really was super fun. And I found myself as a neutral barracking for footy, as we would say on this podcast. I was like, go the D's, go the pies. It was a revolting thing to hear myself say. And just like that, the pies are back in the eight and the D's are three losses on the, on the trot and under the pump for a whole range of reasons, which we'll talk about later. But I just want to call attention to one moment in the final quarter, a very big footy moment. But Patrick Lipinski from the Pies somehow found an eternity in like a packed forward. He took his time. He found his way. He was like, no, this isn't the right side of my body. Found the ball onto the other side of the body. Chip kicked it over the top to Brody Majacek, who kicked them really onto a win. And that was the clincher. And it was just an amazing piece of footy. And the Pies were doing that in the last quarter. And the D's just couldn't quite do it. Julia, Kate, did you enjoy today? Was it fun for you? I loved it actually. And and like you, I found myself going for the D's at a, uh, for, actually, no, sorry, for the pies. See, I'm so confused. I can't even say it. I found myself going for the pies at a certain point. And then when they hit the front, I was sort of mortified because I realized I didn't want them to win. I just wanted a close game. I loved it. And I was particularly impressed by the performance of Mason Cox, who for me, I felt turned the game. There was that passage of play where he was forward and then he was suddenly back and he was, he just, it seemed like he was everywhere, which he kind of is because he's like 25 metres <laughs> tall. But You're lying I, down. He actually goes from <laughs> goalpost to goalpost. It's amazing. <laughs> Pretty much. That's right. Right through the corridor. But I loved it. I also enjoyed BT's commentary, especially this little commentary watch. He said, Dacos to Dacos, both of them involved, obviously. <laughs> So thanks, BT. That was good. Uh, and I, look, I also loved the the whole big freeze and the fun the fundraising. And um, I have to just do a little shout out, of course, to friend of the pod, Andy Ma, <laughs> and our very own Emma Race, who I think got out the Janome and helped put together Andy's outfit for the day. I really enjoyed that. And they raised at last count, you know, with federal government chipping in some taxpayer money over six million dollars. So pretty amazing mm. achievement. Oh, look, it was a fantastic game. There was another BT um, morsel where he said something along the lines of, oh, whether, was it from Nick Dacos where he said, oh, he's doing this, he's doing that, he's probably thinking I'm pretty good on top of this green stuff. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> does he not know how to say grass? <laughs> green stuff. It was a fantastic day and, and you, 
a fantastic game and you do feel that there's something about youngish teams that are just getting going that we all love to watch and that a lot of our, I guess, parochial feelings about certain teams, I hate Collingwood, I hate this, I hate that, when there's a young upstart team, <laughs> it kind of washes that away. You know, I, I'm loving watching Frio at the moment. I obviously love watching Carlton as well, but I, I, <laughs> but I know that other people are also enjoying the way that Carlton play because it's it's young, it's, it's a young group, it's dynamic, it's fun, and there is something about that even though you're finding people who you would usually hate the pies coming in and saying oh I was going for them until until they get too good until they get too good I have to say that I never had that feeling about Hawthorne in 2008 (laughs) (laughs) they were just unlikable sorry They also came from nowhere. I didn't have time to get to like them in 2008. I didn't have time. Then they won the premiership and then they went away and then they were good. I thought, no, it just wasn't quite right. There's no time between here and Mars to like that team. I like this. I'm suddenly outnumbered on this pod. It's usually a majority of Hawks. Majority yeah. rules. If they called you tomorrow and said, you're going down the slide, do you have a dress up firstly already in the cupboard ready to go um, or just come straight to mind that Emma would have to make on the Janome? What would it be that you'd dress up as straight up? I would like Julia and I to go down together as Ooh. Catherine Clifton and, and Count Laszlo de Omashi from The English Patient. Those of us who are long-time listeners to the pod will know that that's our favourite film. The MCG would go wild with that reference, clearly. <laughs> they would. It's a, It's an, It's an. niche. It's niche. <laughs> 9,000 Elaine Bennises would roll their eyes. <laughs> that's right, and there'd be a small corner up in Q47 of people just proudly yeah. <laughs> applauding the effort. If if that was too niche, I think maybe I'd go as Kevin Rudd with a bottle of tomato sauce <laughs> in my hand. I would go, I have this costume because I wore it once to a Mad Monday as um, Cher from the Turn Back Time video. Um, oh, I've got the wig, awesome. I've got the leggings, I've got the leotard. I've got oh, a surprisingly great. good rack which never comes out. And... <laughs> I think right. that I could really slide down that thing. It'd be amazing. And that and the right. leotard really would ride up my bottom mm. via the slide, which I think would add an yeah. added element. Yeah. Extra donations. The donations would flood in <laughs> with the wedgie. Like with the that wedgie. correlation between right. the wedgie donations is quite Ooh. strong. I'd have to really do a show impression. I'm not good at them. <laughs> but I'd have to think of them. Well, I would also already have mine in the cupboard ready to go, which is Poirot in the Orient Express. Yeah. Um, I'd be at Poirot and I'd be sliding down the slide in the train. And I actually think that would go quite well and it's already here. So <laughs> monocle, Ted, would you have a little monocle? 100%. You'd mm-hmm. have to have the monocle, also the walking stick with the bird on the top. Also, um, Poirot's very specific. Well, David Suchet's Poirot's very specific hairline and moustache, mm-hmm. not I, I cannot say this more emphatically, not Kenneth Branagh's moustache uh, as Poirot. And that's on my Poirot pod where I go deep into the moustache. <laughs> You'll get that on my um, spin-off them. pod. But, yeah, God, great occasion and the game matched it. And sadly for her, a very own runner, Hussein, headed along to see the Mighty D's. I mean, why wouldn't you? You'd go to the G on a big day and see your team get up, but that didn't quite happen. And here's her match report. Okay, I'm here at the MCG. I've trekked up to the nosebleeds on level four to find out what is actually bringing people to the game today. It's Melbourne versus Collingwood, Queen's birthday weekend. We've heard so much about why people haven't come. Let's see what they say. I'm here with Jade today. She's here with the little bubby and got a demon's jumper as well. Jade, what's brought you to the footy today? Um, we've been coming to the M&D Queen's birthday match for ever since it started. So, yeah, we come every year. This year we've gone to a few less. I've got an under one-year-old. Um, but, yeah, we try and get to as many games as we can. Why do you think people aren't coming to the footy anymore? Money, cost of living. I don't think it's cold because it's cold every year. So maybe the cost of living. Okay, I'm here with Stuart, the living end of playing behind us. I'm not sure if you can hear this, but let's give it a go. He's also got a pies uh, jumper on, so I'm definitely talking to him for balance. Uh, Stuart, why do you think people aren't coming to the footy anymore? Possibly because of the TV broadcast. is normally so good nowadays. People would rather sit at home in the warmth of their homes and, and get a drink when they want. They can eat what they want. They don't have to pay the prices that the grounds charge. COVID may have a 
a bit of a bearing with people not being feeling safe in large crowd numbers, so um, that could be a reason. It hasn't sort of bothered myself. I've been to most games this year, so it's sort of... Um, a business as usual for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm here with Alex. He's been sitting next to me for the first half. He is a Collingwood supporter, so I'm not sure how this is going to go. But tell me, Alex, what brought you to the game today? Uh, honestly, I'm just uh, taking my friend here for the very first time, mainly because it's an M&D game, and I've never been to one of them. And it's a great atmosphere, and I love going to the footy, personally. So, yeah, I, I go to the footy quite often. They are saying the crowds aren't coming back, but you're, you come to the footy every week, do you? I'd say maybe every couple of times a month. I'm not sure, like, what the whole go is with what, why they think people aren't coming back because of COVID. I personally don't see an issue with it. And is this your first game of football? Yeah, well, my first Collingwood game. <laughs> I went to the one last oh, yeah. week for Essendon Sorry, yeah. and Carlton, but I needed to watch a game with my own team in it. How are you finding it? It's great. It's, it's nail-biting, but it's enjoyable. Will you come back? Definitely, yeah. That's what we want to hear. Thanks so much, guys. Fourth quarter's about to start. Collingwood with the momentum. It's tense times. Made even more tense by the fact that I forgot my glasses. So now I'm sitting in the dark with my prescription sunnies on. I feel either very cool or very silly. Probably both. Well, the game's over. It's almost an hour and a half after the game's ended and I'm still on the train on my way home talking to the crowd around me. It seems like it's all a bit too hard getting to the footy and for us Demon supporters it was even harder today. So big loss for us Dees fans but another round done. Peace. It was actually a great weekend of footy. I'm a real downer, Debbie Downer, about the buy rounds. I really hate them and I feel like the puff goes out of the year. However, almost all of the games this weekend were excellent and or gave us some really good talking points about the footy. So um, for a buy round, it was okay, I guess. Uh, My highlights included back a million years ago on Thursday night when the Tigers played, Judson Clark, debut, two kicks, two goals for your first two kicks in footy. To me, Excellent. That was excellent. And also skinny arms, you know, the skinny arms of a teenager that it's going to be great to watch later on in life when he beefs up a bit. And the other highlight came from the Essendon-Carlton match. It was obviously a very special night for Essendon and I felt like they played really well. Carlton obviously too good. But the Dyson Heppel speech in the he so if you missed it and you're listening to this going I don't know what you're talking about before the game on the ground there was a ring of Essendon players and it wasn't just the current group of players they were Essendon greats so James Hurd was in the, the the group hug and Tim Watson and Job and the Danahers and these old guard of Essendon as well as the new players and Dyson Heppel just revved just this incredibly emotional speech just revving everybody up and I thought that just takes a great deal of bravery you know how like you're very confident within your your group and then an outsider comes and you're like I can't do it in front of guests like I wouldn't (laughs) get to talk that way in front of a guest but he just went there and it was beautiful and they were also talking about the fact that all the old Essendon players had written a letter you know into the locker of the young person that had their jumper about the club and that's just so beautiful and Essendon are clearly going through a tough time as a footy club and they've had a fair few of them um, in the recent era and it just felt really beautiful like it felt like a great celebration even though they didn't get the win of just their club so they were the highlights for me Kate. Yeah I enjoyed that game too and I thought to be honest I thought Essendon would be pretty um, soundly beaten but I thought they you know they really held up pretty well um as a Hawthorne supporter, it pains me to say that I enjoyed um, the game with Frio because I think Frio are playing really well. And one of the things I enjoyed about watching Frio, and in fact, all the games this weekend, is that I do feel like the competition is open, wide open. And that's what I want to see more than anything. Melbourne losing, I think, was is, sorry, Rana and other D's fans, good for the competition. I think Frio are playing really well. Brisbane are playing well. So I'm just enjoying the kind of spread um, and evenness that is starting to make itself apparent in this second half of the season. And, um, yeah, I like that. I like the fact that it feels like it's anyone's cup. I loved watching this week, going back to the Queen's birthday game, Nick Dacos. I think I'm not the only person watching <laughs> footy at the moment who's enjoying him play. You know, there is something beautiful and romantic about that hearing that name again and that the way that he plays and his brother plays as well are just as such natural agile footballers who you would imagine would have so much pressure on them to perform 
it's the biggest club in the country with arguably one of the you know most famous names associated with that club so I'm just really enjoying watching him um you know I'm a Carlton supporter but I grew up at Vic Park (laughs) I grew up at Vic Park going to Collingwood games I've seen many more Collingwood games than I have Carlton games in the flesh and Peter Dacos was probably my favorite player for a long time so I'm loving seeing him out there and his brother as well incidentally once I was at South Melbourne Market and I was walking behind someone who I you know when you're walking behind a footballer and you're like this person must play a sport because they are they just look have the different dimensions to other human beings mm-hmm. and this person's calf muscles were like if you've got two <laughs> cantaloupes and like taped them to sticks <laughs> <laughs> and then it turned around and it was the older Dacos so that's mm. you just talked about skinny arms I'm talking about bulbous calves <laughs> Love it. I just have to say it doesn't always happen like that, Julia, because I was once walking behind Paul Puopolo at the IGA <laughs> and I knew it was Paul Puopolo because he was actually not that tall, but he was tall enough to be able to reach the crumpets, which were up high mm. for me. Anyway, I couldn't get to the crumpets, but he could. So I guess the lesson of that is that Paul, there's a couple of lessons in that. One is that Paul Puopolo likes crumpets, so do I. <laughs> Did you ask him to get crumpets for you? Like the Makona ad? No, I didn't. No. Uh, to be honest, I was texting my sister to say, Paul Palopolo's <laughs> in the store. <laughs> he's getting crumpets. Also, the other lesson is that he's not as short as you think, but he's also taller than you think. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> Thanks. Doxy is medical report. Some people are taller right. than you think and some people aren't. Uh, no, all valid highlights. And um, you know who sticks out like that for me? If we're going to we're gonna go there on tall versus short or whatever, <laughs> Jack Silvani, yeah. just to me, Can't <laughs> has, he grown in the last, has he grown yeah. in the last year? Because years ago when he first started, maybe it was a confident thing and he used to slump his shoulders. I don't know. And now that they're up and about, he's standing much taller. But he is like the same height. As Charlie Kerno and, you know, Patrick Cripps, but I've always thought of him as a, like a small, long sleeve wearing man. And I just I was like, have I never seen this person before? I think he's one of those players that commentators say can play tall, which has always been a fascinating <laughs> phrase to me because I think it's like an Inspector Gadget situation where they just, ex- like, do they just extend their arms and legs and go, go Gadget arms? But yeah, he's played in the ruck this year. And I must admit, mm. I thought the same, you know, I thought, what is going on here? <laughs> when did this happen? And I've known you since you were just a little boy. But here you and are now playing in you're, the ruck. You're running on top of the ground. And <laughs> on the on top stuff. of the green stuff. Yeah, on that's right. I hear playing tall as like a Daniel Day Lewis situation. Like he's gone oh, full yeah. into the role. Like he's <laughs> the ruck this quarter and so that's like he's fully method he's method playing maybe Paul Puopolo was playing tall when he went (laughs) the crumpets and he's like no I am tall this week yes he was he was go go crumpet arms now we need to bring back a very special part of the podcast which we haven't talked about for a long time Kate and I'm saying that's on you because it's your segment now omen watch we used to do a lot of omen watch we still do a little private omen watch in the group chat but I got a very special message this week from a listener and a dear friend of the pod, Melanie Ray. Now, listeners, Melanie's a Frio fan. So you've got to just understand if you're in if you're in WA, you've been cut off from the country for a couple of years, been a lot of thwarted trips, you've Frio's been no good for quite a long time since Hawthorne destroyed their confidence all those years ago. Another thing to put on the list, Julia. But I got a message <laughs> I got a message from Melanie this week that said flights are very expensive, right, to get from WA to Victoria. And if you were going to do a last-minute flight, for example, like in September when your team makes the grand final, if you were to do such a short spur-of-the-moment trip, it's going to cost you too much money. However, the footy gods, they're quite vicious and they they really take offence. And they they think, well, if you've booked flights in September, for September in what are we, June, like, no way are Freo making the, making the grand final. No way are they even making finals. In fact, they're not winning a single game from here on out and all of their players are being injured. So she's in a position where what do you do 
If you really secretly believe in flag mantle, but you don't want to put the moz on it in June ahead of September, it's coming to the Outer Sanctum Council right now. Can I go first? I feel like what you've got to do is pretend that you already are coming to Melbourne for something in September. For example, Hamilton. It's a good show, right? You might be into theatre. You might not be in theatre. You might think, all right, I want to go see Hamilton. So you think, when's a good time in Melbourne? It's too cold in winter. Nothing's happening in Melbourne in summer. So spring's a good time to come to to come to Melbourne to see Hamilton. And if you're not allergic to plane trees, an even better time to come to Melbourne <laughs> in the spring. So if I was her, I would book tickets to Hamilton that just happened to be around the same time. And then the footy gods would be like, oh, She's already here and her team are in the finals. We might just give them an extra footy god boost and then get them over the line. So that's what I would do. I'm going to take it over to you too. The footy gods in my experience see right through that kind of <laughs> um, that kind of attempt to get around the rules test. And I speak from experience, okay, because in 2012 I lived in London and I made plans to come back for work. <laughs> in inverted commas. No, I did work, you know, in a job that had an international element. So I did have to come back to Australia at some stage for meetings, but I did time my visit to, to coincide with the preliminary <laughs> final and the grand final. Hawthorne had, you may remember, been the best team what? all year, 2012, and they won the prelim by three or four points against Adelaide. They just like literally crawled across the line and then of course they lost the grand final and I do regard myself as pretty much single-handedly responsible for that. There were a couple of other factors like Nick Melcheski and Adam Goods and other people who played for Sydney who played a role but not the main role. So I regret that. But what I would say to Mel is that on the flip side, I also think that losing in 2012 is what spurred us on to the three-peat. So if she booked this year, and Frio made the grand final and lost, she would almost guarantee them a three-peat thereafter. So I say go ahead and book. (laughs) Julia, any advice from your experience? I have no good advice. I'm terrible at this. If anything, I become like a bad girlfriend where I'm like, well, I don't even care. I don't even care. Like you, I'm just not going to answer your calls. Um, I don't even care. I'm going to not care about it. Maybe I go for West Coast. Maybe I go for, I actually go for West Coast and we've gone on a few dates and I think I might introduce West Coast to my parents. Like that's how I'm feeling. So <laughs> I have a completely neurotic relationship with a successful team. <laughs> right Love now I'm it. not coping about Carlton. Sometimes I can't <laughs> even watch it. I plan to garden while the game's on. I listen in fits and spurts. <laughs> if the opposition gets a goal, I turn it off. Mm. Yeah, I have no advice, Mel. And I would say back to the Hamilton plan that the footy guys <laughs> do know that and that she would say, okay, well, logically maybe I'll go to Hamilton on the Thursday mm. and then the game will be on a Friday or a Saturday or whatever. And then, like, Gil would just go, no, this year we are trialling a Thursday Twilight Grand Final. <laughs> totally. That's what will happen. That's true. That's true. That's so true. I was going to say only if they had made the Twilight Grand Final now a thing. This is the only time I'm ever going to, I'm ever going to even say that's going to be a thing. She could catch a matinee of Hamilton <laughs> going along to the football, so all on the same day. But I think we need to put this out to the wider Sanctum family to tweet us, Insta us, like should she, should she buy a ticket? right now or should she just stay her course and hope that some airline does a crazy sale in about September and that maybe she'll be able to <laughs> skirt the sales. I'd, I'd sign up to the sale emails, to be honest, and just watch this space. Yep. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Darcy Vessio, and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum Podcast. Footy gods, if you're listening, nothing to see here. Shall we uh, roll up our sleeves and melee in a totally non-violent way and not at a French restaurant? 
Yes. Well, it's been a shocker of a week, really, for the for the Melbourne Football Club. We discussed it earlier, not only on field, but off field. Their key star defender is missing several weeks after drinking whilst out with concussion in a some kind of brawl slash punching slash terrible situation with his teammates. Things were apparently said that sound like they were very hurtful and spiteful and just doesn't seem like it's a it's a happy place at the D's. And one thing we've been talking about a lot on this podcast this year is just the manifestation of masculinity and toxic masculinity in the game that we love. And this week felt like a very big example of that, where we saw players who could be making better choices, making really terrible choices. And, you know, there's a whole lot of questions around that. For me, it made me think a lot about the last couple of years and even, you know, the Bulldogs premiership and what we called the premiership hangover and just is the way in which clubs can really blossom in success or really crumble with success. And it really depends on how well your club's set up to expect success. It is really challenging when you're inside that situation to deal with that in a healthy way, you know, to be the best and to say you're the best and to play the best and then to handle your club being on the back page of the paper every year, every week and every day and private text messages and all sorts of things like that. And so I understand how these things kind of bubble to the surface and and people don't deal well with it. Kate, a couple of other stories came to mind this week and a couple of other newspaper articles really discussing masculinity. Yeah, well, there was was, uh, a piece in the Herald Sun where Cameron Mooney was reflecting on his role in the 2008 Geelong team and in their grand final loss to Hawthorne. And um, for for those of you who who may not remember that game, you know, it was a pretty close game. Geelong were very much expected to win. And just before halftime and then immediately after halftime, Mooney had a shot on goal, both sides of the halftime break. And on both occasions he missed. And um, the commentators said that he, you know, they thought he had the yips. And when he did mark it in the 50 thereafter in the third quarter, I think, and maybe also in the fourth, he played on uh, pretty quickly, you know, and it was clear that he was not confident in having a shot. And he spoke about that last week in, in that article and reflected on the kind of long, long-standing fallout of that loss um, and the mental health implications for him. And one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is that in that article, not only did he say that he really felt personally responsible for Geelong losing and that he used to go to training afterwards and would sometimes be in tears and you know, just kind of couldn't cope very well psychologically. He said, you are supposed to be the man. And there was a couple of references to that language of being the man in that article. It occurred to me very strongly that there was something about masculinity tied up. There was something about this ideal situation that is sort of, it's on his shoulders, the responsibility is on his shoulders. And that he also felt, I think, embarrassed to have been psychologically impacted by that loss. He talked about the fact that he wasn't willing to seek out mental health support or psychological help. He says nowadays, you know, he thinks that even only 14 years later, it's much more common for for footballers to do that. But the fact that he was so clearly impacted and felt responsible and felt like he hadn't been the man seemed to me to tell tell us something important about masculinity and the way that it can have this very corrosive, specific kinds of masculinities can have a very corrosive and dangerous effect on people's sense of self and well-being. What I'm hearing from that is the reflection in how things are possibly different now, how players can in some cases talk about those things. I don't underestimate the work that was done, say, at Richmond with Emma Murray in really individualising support for certain players who did perhaps deal with certain anxieties around performance and the different strategies that were employed at that club, but also how public they were about that. You know, you can read a lot about it. There are lots of interviews um, and players were quite forthright in articulating what they grew to know about themselves through that, how they learnt that, you know, in this particular situation, I feel anxious when, and I can correct it with these certain behaviors or meditation or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, that's, that's a whole decade later that that's happened. And I think that there's a lot of value to, to come out of that. And I hope that those things aren't being lost, um, now that, you know, Richmond's terrible, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) just kidding, but, uh, I'm I'm certain that that's not universally ex- accepted. That there are still plenty of people who would say would hear those things about Richmond and go, mm, that's, a, "That's a lot of talking. Just kick it through the big sticks." 
I agree with you, Julia. I also think it's a generational thing to some extent because to me a lot of the commentary around particularly the the fight that broke out between Melbourne players from past footballers, even those who've left the game pretty recently, I found quite striking. For instance, I heard Cameron Ling talking about it on ABC Radio and he said he was talking about the fact that if you were part of a team and one of your teammates had made fun of your performance or had um, made fun of the fact that you weren't good enough to make the grand final team or had missed out on winning the premiership, this kind of stuff, that it would really hurt. And he said, I don't, he said words almost exactly to this effect. I don't condone violence in any way. And he said, he he repeated that a few times. He said, I'm I'm totally anti-violence, but (laughs) my blood would boil if this was me. And Jordan Lewis was reported saying, that um, when Hawthorne won those premierships, you know, some players who miss out on the premiership do feel left on the outer and that it success is problematic for a club and it's hard to manage and it can create divisions. And I felt that those kind of comments from past players really kind of naturalised the response, accepted that to some extent some people will feel on the outer when a team has success and that's inevitable and unavoidable and kind of natural and that the fact that it might then sort of manifest itself in violence is the sort of thing that just happens. Rather than, as you're saying, Julia, I think, something that could be managed from within a club that can be prevented if you have the right structures and systems in place, if you have the right psychological support and the right culture and you are preparing yourself for success and bringing along with you all of those players who sit around and might just not make the team on the day but who are made to feel part of it. What I am also thinking about is how we've spoken before on the pod about, you know, the participation award um, that some of, <laughs> some of the team think that, you know, on grand final day that everyone in the squad should get a medal and I'm very much against that because I do think that there is meaning to being picked on the day and playing on the day and that the, the team needs to find other ways to make everyone feel included but that also like, not being picked is the reality and will come with pain and that pain is not the end of the world and that there are ways to hold pain and feel pain and that pain and hurt does actually not need to be expressed outwards through violence. Um, And I think that that's, for me, the lesson that I think men and boys need to learn and I'm raising a little boy right Mm. now and I can tell you it's really hard sometimes when he feels hurt and pain and his reaction as a six-year-old is to push it out is to hit something Mm. throw something and I know that part of it is about child development but that um it's something that I've really noticed in him and so something that I think you know as a one person sample okay so this is the impulse is I'm personally hurt so I need to hurt something else and how you know we support boys and men and non-binary people to find ways to feel pain and have a cry and have a think it doesn't need to be pushed outwards it doesn't need to explode outwards yeah well men have long been socially conditioned to Um, express themselves through violence and to respond to even the smallest slight through violence and you know that that's kind of built into the entire fabric of our society and we have legal systems that are built off the back of that that have endorsed that kind of behavior from men for a long period of time and there is a great responsibility that comes with the way we talk about violence public acts of violence and and for me, it's at that level that I'm frustrated by the way that the discourse has unfolded this week. I saw Mark Robinson say that, I'll quote here, that he deserved a clip. Um, mm. th- that is, in in my view, such irresponsible commentary because, again, not only does it sort of endorse violence and endorse this way of expressing frustration, as you say, Julius, sadness, frustration, whatever those emotions might be, but when combined with those other the the kind of reflections from other commentators and past players that I mentioned earlier it also suggests that it's a kind of natural and inevitable response and we really need to get at these ways of talking about men's emotions and men's feelings and men's displays of violence if we're to have any impact on on what is essentially a kind of epidemic of male violence in in Mm. Australia not just in terms of these public displays of violence but also privately as well. To your point Kate about Cameron Ling I think it's fair I think it's okay to say your blood 
would boil. Mm. Like yeah. sometimes it, it, I, my blood uh, is currently boiling. It's boiling all the time. Yeah. It's, it's at its set temperature. Right? The kettle's always going because stuff can make you cross and then it's about what you do with it mm. after that. And that's where that conversation just needs to go a little bit further. So rather than saying I don't condone violence but my blood would be boiling, it's like my blood would be boiling but there are other ways internally at clubs to currently deal with these sorts mm. of things. And, you know, we're speaking about Geelong, Camuni, 14 years ago versus Richmond, you know, in the modern era. Well, what strikes me is that Melbourne is both of these things at once. It's old school and new school mm. all at the same time. And we're seeing it unfold because people like, you know, May and Melksham out and about, and they haven't found a way to discuss those things yet to say, hey, that's not on. And I'm sorry, but if you were the players in Melbourne who didn't make that grand final and not necessarily the ones at the table, but anyone at that club, you think, oh, God, is that how everybody's speaking about me? And that stuff is so poisonous mm-hmm. if it's not spoken out loud because if you think, if you go into any room, any workplace, and you think, oh, I wonder what they're saying about me um, when I'm not here, that's so poison to any kind of good culture you've got going on. And then we saw, you know, Max Gorn come out afterwards and say, hey, I've really had to question my leadership because it's clearly not appropriate and I've really had to go and think about myself and this really mature response about how he felt like he needed to step up because clearly the leadership wasn't quite there. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, we never really see these things unfolding in real time where we're having these two conversations at once. And Jack Rewalt, you know, did speak about the Richmond experience and and how you you need internally to be ta- having those conversations way before you're at a bar, mm. you know, and everybody's on the reds and, and it's manifesting in a really violent way. But there's still people that didn't play in the grand final that would still feel awful, right, mm. that they didn't get to play in the grand final no matter what the club does um, to try and make them feel involved. And that's a human emotion. They're going to have to come to terms with and 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 find a mature outlet for. One thing that also made me think is this a different situation is that during the Hawthorne years and the Richmond years and even Geelong, we had a VFL team that a lot of those players would have been playing in that's also in the finals, also having their own success, also having these things going on. And last year we didn't have that. So if you missed out for Melbourne, you just, you just really missed out. There mm. was no kind of, they were over in Perth, they were winning, you might not have even been there. You know, there's a real split that might be quite mm. pandemic specific, but it also made me think heaps about the dissent rule. So, right, we've been talking a lot about how expressions of emotion are quite natural and the AFL itself has had to has had to pair back a rule to say, okay, we now accept that certain levels of emotion in a game are natural, but it's not ending up that manifesting in bullying or mm. um, pushing around or worse at umpiring in all sorts of community levels. And I thought we really are having this conversation in real time. Mm. Like what level of display of emotion and anger are we going to accept and at what point are we saying that's actually unacceptable and it's a pretty grey line. We've been talking a lot about mental health and Bailey Smith had spoken openly in the last couple of years about his mental health and his journey and this week found himself in the centre of a a drug scandal and it's raised a heap of questions. I feel in the past these questions would have been directed directly at that player, you know, it would have been a really personal conversation and this week I think in what is kind of a sign of maturity, if not we're not there yet, it's become a question about the policy, the illicit drugs policy and if that's actually standing up to to a modern game and a modern society. First off, I need to put my hand up and say that I was like, hang on, what's the policy again when everyone was talking about the policy? So can we go back to basics, Dr. Kate, and tell me what the current policy is and how how it operates? Yes, and it's worth just saying a little bit about the history of it. So the AFL introduced an illicit drug policy back in 2005 and we must acknowledge from the start that the illicit drug policy is separate from the performance enhancing drug policy and that's an important distinction. So back in 2005 the AFL Players Association agreed essentially that players would be subject to testing for illicit drugs of various kinds, drugs like cannabis, cocaine, ice, GHB and and MDMA or, or ecstasy. The policy was initially known as a three strikes policy and it was revised in 2015-16. It's now a two strike policy but it's slightly confusing because there's a third strike element. So let me explain to you how it works. Essentially if a player tests positive to one of those illicit substances that they have a what's called a first strike recorded against them. They receive a fine of about $5,000 and are offered some counselling and I think treatment if that uh, is deemed to be appropriate. It's managed 
by a small number of people within the club, the, the medical team, the medical doctor, and it's not more widely known at that stage. If they then sustain a second strike, they are publicly named and suspended for four games. And if they have a third strike, they're suspended for 12 games. As I said, this is separate from in addition to the performance enhancing drugs policy. And that's important, I think, because most workplaces don't, um, most of us who, you know, we don't have to be tested for drugs or alcohol um, in our workplaces as a condition of our employment. We're not subject to penalties if we test positive, unless we work in one of a select few industries where drug use is um, considered to be sort of relevant for risk or OHS purposes. And there are two reasons really why this policy exists. The first one is that it's designed to support players who have used drugs and who test positive and who might then benefit from counselling or treatment or pathways into treatment of some kind. But the second reason it exists, let's be clear, is because it helps protect the AFL's brand and reputation, or it's believed to be important for the purposes of protecting the AFL's brand. The competition essentially doesn't want heaps of players out publicly using illicit drugs and being caught with them or going through legal processes that might harm the reputation, have impacts for sponsorship and broadcasting deals and so on. And so um, it has those two quite different rationales, which are in a way, I think, in tension with one another. Um, you know, On the one hand, that first rationale, which is about supporting players and offering them counselling and treatment or pathways into treatment if they need it, is uh, a method that treats drug use like a social and health issue. But then that second rationale for the policy, which is about protecting the AFL's brand, often results in this kind of punitive approach to drug use, which you see if a player gets a second or a third strike. As you said, Tess, it's this policy that's really come into focus in the last week. It's it's actually a discussion that's been building for a few weeks. It's not really just about Bailey Smith. I think it's also about Sam Fisher, who we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, who's now facing very serious allegations of having participated in drug trafficking. That also prompted a bit of a discussion about the, the nature and purpose of the illicit drug policy and whether it's working. Mm. There were a few big names that had a lot to say about it. Uh, firstly, of interest to me, Luke Beveridge, um, the coach of Bailey Smith and the Dogs, who essentially just said this is just not working and we should scrap the policy, and also the president of Hawthorne, Jeff Kennett, who was very outspoken and I'll, you know, you can chat about what he had to say if you like. But one thing that made me kind of mad is that, you know, those two opinions are given equal weight in the conversation. It's like, well, anyone... If anyone says anything, off you go. Except an expert, how you know you would never have, you would never speak to an expert. But um, you know Jeff Kennett's opinion about it was front and center, and it really set the news agenda. And it made me mad because I thought, well, this person's actually coming to the end of his tenure in the game. He's not going to be a relevant person or a relevant voice in the game in the way these policies work in a few years. Whereas Luke Beveridge is the current coach of current young men and one of the men in the center of this storm. Shouldn't really give that more weight. And also maybe here for some. From some from some different voices, people who actually may know intimately what they're talking about. It just kind of made me mad. I thought, all right, we're once again just stuck in the vacuum of just that everyone just gets to have a say about it. Yeah, and when Jeff Kennett speaks on these issues, he you know he does get he has a huge platform. He gets a lot of attention, and and his position test was essentially that um, also that the policy wasn't working, but he means it in a different sense. Luke Beveridge's view is that the policy should just be tossed out altogether. Mm. Jeff Kennett's view is that we need to remove those strikes and have a zero tolerance approach to drug use. He in fact said that what he would like to see is anybody who tests positive a first time be banned for the game from the game uh, for, for a minimum of two years without pay. So a very punitive um, approach. There's so many things I can say about that, but I just want to reel off a, f a few of my reactions when I heard him say that. The first is that Jeff Kennett presides over a club, my club, that has the only player who has ever uh, incurred three strikes. This was under the older policy that I mentioned, the one that ran from about 2005 to 2015, and that's Travis Tuck. And Travis Tuck, when he incurred his third strike, was named publicly. Um, he was found in his car, as you may remember, back in 2010, having experienced an overdose. What I would say to Jeff Kennett, who talks this kind of language of naming and shaming players, is what is the benefit of naming and shaming a player who finds himself in that kind of situation? And what would be the benefit of 
then ejecting somebody like Travis Tuck from the game for two years without pay, how is that going to help him in any way? Kennett's view might be that drug use is illegal and um, what we need to do is have a heavy-handed approach. Well, 43% of Australians, according to the most recent national survey on these issues, have ever tried illicit drugs in their life. 43%, so nearly half. And that, of course, doesn't include people who consume alcohol, which is a drug. It just happens to be for historic reasons, many of which have to do with race. Um, importantly, it happens to be legal. But also Kenneth's sort of zero tolerance, hardline, really punitive approach is also completely at odds with the expert evidence on drug use and what's happening around the world. Um, we are moving away in some parts of the world quite rapidly from a war on drugs punitive approach in recognition of the fact that it's not drugs themselves that create harm. It's it's bound up intimately with the legal and policy environment that prohibits them. You can't separate those things out. So many countries in the world, we saw Thailand announce last week that it was moving to decriminalise drugs. I could reel off a whole bunch of other places that have done the same, but it's also happening here in Australia. The ACT announced last week that it is going to move to decriminalise all drugs. There are discussions being had actively in Victoria and New South Wales at the moment. Western Australia had an inquiry into drug law reform a couple of years ago, um, and there have been recommendations for reform there. So Kennett is really on the wrong side of history on this um, on this approach too, in terms of being more in favour of this naming and shaming and punitive approach, because it is not only at odds with what the evidence tells us about treating, you know, the importance of treating drug use like a social and health issue, but it's also at odds with the global trend, which is heading away from punitive approaches towards treating drug use as a social and health issue. Yeah, the other thing I think that the policy, the the, the three strikes or one strike, two strike policy does acknowledge with the, the first strike um, acknowledges the reality of, of, of the playing cohort of the workforce. You know, young men with access to huge amounts of disposable income um, who play an elite sport and so who are already in that world of adrenaline-seeking, adrenaline, they're still 18, 19, 20, they're, they're, they're brains aren't fully developed. That idea of risk and consequence hasn't quite got in there yet. So what's the, not what's the point of punishment, but it does acknowledge all those factors that that young people do engage in risk-taking behaviours. And just because they are role models and so on, doesn't mean you need to lock them up and throw away the key. The second and third strikes are, are very uncomfortable to me. It just seems like a very quick shift into suddenly being made public and suddenly everyone knowing your business. I don't think we need to feel sorry for players, but I think we can acknowledge that people that are in their late teens, early 20s, who suddenly have all this freedom and all this money might make poor decisions that don't need to be scattered on the back pages of the paper for everyone to chew over and, and have opinions about, including people who are clearly so out of touch and think that they are still Mr. Premier. <laughs> yes. It's also annoying because we had a conversation maybe in 2019, so it was like pre-pandemic, so things get kicked down the line, but that the policy really did need a review because there were, first of all, that yeah, extreme leap from first to second and third strikes, but also that uh, if a player concedes that they've got a mental health problem and that drug use was a part of that, that doesn't count as a strike. And that has also been played out really badly in the media because they're kind of talking about people using it as an excuse or a loophole or something like that. Also, the constant saying out loud that mental health and drug use are totally one and the same, which is they're not always. It's kind of this this policy that needs a really good look at, but it has done for very many years. And so you kind of get to the point where you're sick of having to hear Mr. Premier and every other person's opinion about it without it actually going anywhere. So you what you want to see is an actual action. Yeah, I, I did hear today, Tess, that there are plans to have a look at that policy. So that 2019 <laughs> discussion has been revived. Yep. Can I just say plans to have a look at is my most hated sentence where they're like, well, we're going to have a review about whether we should do anything. I think you probably should. Yes. Yeah. And in my view, what's really important is who participates in any such review. I hope that the AFL will have harm reduction experts, drug law reform experts in there, people who have lived experience, um, so people who use drugs themselves. And 
rarely in these public debates about something like the illicit drug policy do you hear from people who use drugs themselves. Bailey Smith has spoken about his experiences this week and I think and I think and hope that that was very informative for members of the public for him to talk so candidly about his reasons for using drugs and where he was at in that broader context. But that's rare, I think. And on this show, part of the sort of ethos of this program from the very outset has been a slogan called Nothing About Us Without Us. That's a slogan that's used in a lot of policy areas and policy domains, including within the domain in which I work, which is doing research on alcohol and other drug issues. And it's very important when talking about drug use to give space to people who use drugs and give them an opportunity to talk. But there are obvious barriers to that and are obvious reasons why people who use drugs often don't speak publicly or aren't invited to speak publicly or, or feel they can't speak. But I'm really pleased that today we do have that opportunity on the podcast to hear from somebody who is truly one of the world's leading experts on drug use, and that is Dr. Annie Madden AO. Annie has a really long um, CV, which would take me an hour to go through, but I just want to share with you some of it because she truly has unparalleled credentials in this space. Annie has been an advocate for the human rights of people who use drugs for decades, representing people who use drugs on the national and the international stage, including at high-level meetings with governments uh, at the United Nations and so on. She was previously the CEO of Australia's Peak organization for people who use drugs, AVIL. Uh, she's founded and implemented many life-saving harm reduction programs across the country, and she's the co-founder and executive director of Harm Reduction Australia. In 2019, Annie received an Order of Australia in recognition of her work championing the health and human rights of people who use drugs, and I caught up with Annie to talk about these issues a little earlier. So welcome, Annie Madden, to the Outer Sanctum podcast. It's so lovely to have you with us. Oh, thank you. I can't believe that I'm actually getting to be on this amazing podcast. It's, you know, so well known. And anyway, it's really exciting. I love it. Oh, thanks, Annie. It's really great of you to be here. Um, let's jump straight in because we've got plenty to talk about. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about your reflections on some of the critiques that have been made of the AFL's illicit drug policy this week, and in particular, the enthusiasm among some, such as Jeff Kennett, for zero tolerance approaches to drug use. In your view, do these zero tolerance and more punitive approaches to drug use work? And if not, um, or if so, can you, can you tell us a little bit about why? I think no, they don't work. Part of my answer of just a flat no is that it kind of goes to one of the words you used when you were asking me the question, and that is that they, you know, the idea that they take a punitive approach, right? I'll come back to that, but I also think that zero tolerance approaches, besides the problems with them being punitive, are a bad idea because they're not realistic. Typically, when in Australia, we do sort of population-based surveys on drug use and, and those kinds of issues. In fact, the Australian government does those surveys quite regularly. It's called the National Drug and Alcohol Household Survey. Repeatedly, over many years now, we've found that you know, approximately 50%, you know, now that's like a lot of people, that's maybe 12 million people or something, admit to having ever used an illicit drug in their lifetime. And so, you know, that's likely to be a significant underestimate because you're thinking about people admitting this to a government survey person, okay, and it's an illegal behaviour. And then a further sort of, you know, 15, 20% of those people admit to having used a drug in the last 12 months. And to give, you know, put that in perspective, I guess, if we wanted to arrest everyone who has admitted to using an illicit drug in the last 12 months, that would be, we'd be arresting over a million people. So when I say these things are unrealistic, I mean, they are seriously unrealistic. You know, you might even say, because you hear this term a lot, you know, that zero tolerance approaches, you know, those war on drugs type approaches are actually a war on ourselves. That's what we're actually doing. You can see from those stats that I've just um, talked about, you know, drug use is not unusual. It's in fact, it's it's really commonplace in our society. And, you know, it's, it's in fact a, a fundamental part of the human condition, like as far back as we can go and records have been kept and whatever. People, human beings use substances 
to alter their perceptions, to expand their minds, to have different experiences, to celebrate, to commemorate. In fact, every week at the footy, people will engage in drug use of one kind of another, whether that's legal or not, alcohol, coffee, something, whatever, as part of kind of having fun. And so I think, you know, sort of by demonising certain substances through these punitive approaches where you make them illegal and people can be arrested and put in prison and lose their kids and in this case, you know, compulsory workplace type drug testing where people can lose their jobs and their livelihood and everything they've worked for and their personal reputations, they're, you know, they're publicly humiliated, all those things, you know, they are they create extremely harmful narratives around illicit drug use. We end up seeing people who use drugs as these very aberrant people who are liars and thieves and criminals. It turns people into criminals. You know, they just sort of end up pushing people further away from any information, further away from support, further away from services, anything that's useful and helpful for people, people can't access those because they're too scared to come forward and talk about it. Together, those things create a really unworkable situation, I think, for zero tolerance approaches. What do you think is lost in big public discussions about drug use, whether it's through the lens of sport or through some other kind of policy domain? What do you think is lost when we don't have the opportunity to to hear from people who have lived experience. Again, you know, it comes back to we often sort of see if we don't have those perspectives at the table, there's often sort of these very sort of minority views take hold, you know, and that this is the one story, the one account of drug use and this is the only thing that happens and that this is right. And, you know, one of the things that people who use drugs can bring to the table is that sort of diversity of experience, that everyone's experience of drug use is different and there are, you know, people use drugs, many different drugs for many different reasons. You know, that I think is one of the things that we definitely lose by not having people at the table. We And we also, I think, lose some perspective on the issues. I think it's very common for people who haven't, you know, typically had experiences of, of having people who use drugs at the table, you know, to say, wow, you know, it just made so much difference to have that voice at the table. Like you broader perspective to this that, you know, would not otherwise, you know, but for you being there would not otherwise have come out or another way of thinking about things or, you know, just maybe making the issues not quite so scary and terrifying as well because, you know, I'm there talking about these issues as someone who has, you know, used illicit drugs for, you know, long large part of my life, um, injecting drug use or all those things and I am, you know, able to function and talk and, you know, I'm reasonably well regarded in my field. I've had a productive life. I contribute to the community and I have many, many friends and peers who also do the same. I know that a lot of people listening to this uh, would be very grateful to hear your perspective, but it's also a really emotive topic and I'm sure that there are people who will be listening along and thinking that's all well and good, but drugs still do generate harms um, and are still associated with various harms. And so some, I think that's why people struggle to get away from this punitive approach and to start thinking about drug use in a different way, thinking about it as a social issue and a health issue and thinking about it more compassionately. What would you say to those folks listening at home? It's important not to take what I'm saying sort of wrongly in the sense that I'm not suggesting that drugs, you know, there is no harm associated with drug use, but many of the harms that we see from drug use are actually created or at least exacerbated by the way we deal with drug use in society. I'm not suggesting you have to adopt my perspective on these issues, but I think it is important to be informed on this these issue, this issue in particular because it is uh, a very commonplace in our society. Most people will know someone or, or have you know known people who are drug users. And so it's worth being informed on this and seeing what you might think when you get some different perspectives. Final question for you, Annie. What is the one thing that you would like people to know about people who use drugs? I think, you know, for me, maybe it's less about what I might want you to know about people who use drugs and maybe it's more about something to know about drug use itself, you know, which then in turn relates to people who use drugs. And it's really time particularly based on what I've said about how commonplace drug use is in Australian society, that we stop thinking about drug use as some sort of aberrant or kind of weird uh, behaviour because it's not. For many people, drug use is kind of part 
of their life journey. And for some people, it's quite fleeting. For others, it's occasional. For others, it's a much bigger part of their lives. But the way that we respond to drugs in society is everything. You know, it, it is really important how we respond. And I guess, you know, they're the sorts of things I would like people to take away from this. Compassionate responses, treating people with basic human rights and dignity, taking an evidence-based approach, you know, using our basing our approaches on what we know works rather than hysteria. And and punitive responses. And I think then we would start to see a far more um, considered and sensible debate around these issues in Australia. Well, it's almost time for us to get out of here. Uh, but first, I've got to chat. Buy rounds, I get quite bothered by them because I just get a bit bored. In the meantime, I, of course, like everyone else, have gone back and watched the new season of Stranger Things. And one delightful aspect of this season of Stranger Things is the use of a song by one Kate Bush. You might have heard of her running up that hill, bit of a banger, and it's really risen to the charts. So I thought, well, we've got an opportunity here to really dig in. Now, there's nothing there's nothing better than a bit of healthy nostalgia in football and to think, right, what are some of the footy classic songs? Because we don't write a lot of songs now about football. We had Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody, but there's not enough songs about footy coming out in 2022 so we can get the kids with a bit of nostalgia. So I thought, well, let's talk about songs from footy songs we want to bring back. One I've clearly tried unsuccessfully at this stage on this podcast is There's Only One Tony Lockett. So I had There's Only One Erin Phillips and that went quite well. She quoted it back to me and I feel like that's great success. However, you only need like a double-double syllable, so dirt, 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 dirt to make this work. So for TikTok and stuff, it's very adaptable. That's what I'm saying. And the other one doesn't have room now because they've changed the name of the team is Dare to Beat the Bear. Now, if people don't know, the Brisbane Bears had a <laughs> quite a few songs actually. Dare to Beat the Bear uh, was an absolute banger and it had some great lyrics such as We're Hot, still relevant, We're Mean, I mean, sure, We're Strong and We're a Team, that it could be tweaked and used uh, for individual teams like Dare to Beat Jackson Clare and <laughs> Dare to Beat Rory Laird. And so I feel like we could make it work. Oh, great. Off the teams, mm. Kate. I love this test because you asked us to reflect on an old song that we would bring back and mine is also from the Brisbane Bears, <laughs> believe it or not. Brisbane Bears will live forever, which was one of their other theme songs. Slightly ironic since they didn't live <laughs> forever. But this is to the this is to the theme of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And um, the lyrics are, if you are a Queenslander, then sing along with me. We are the bears on the road to victory. All for one and one for all will answer to the call. We're the greatest team of all. And then the chorus, Brisbane Bears will live forever. We will always stick together. The Gabba is the place where people always come to see the greatest team of all. Now, the reason why this means a lot to me is because this is the same tune that my primary school song was <laughs> set to for some strange reason. You want to hear a little bit of my hundred percent. I mean, don't you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't so, believe you remember. Oh, I remember it all. South of the mouth of the lovely river Tweed, we come to play our spots and do arithmetic and read. Koalas <laughs> sing around us. At, no, sorry, the birds will sing around us. As koalas climb the tree, as good Australians grow. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah for Tweed Head South. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah for Tweed Head South. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah for Tweed Head South. The best school that we know. Also the only school that I knew. But the best one that we know is a real disclaimer. Like just just say it's just the best one that we know. So don't get offended. I don't know any other schools. And also you've just displayed a great way of bringing that song back into the modern. Just give it to another primary school. It's the best song that's the best school they know. (laughs) Love it. It's a hit. It's a banger. Julia. I'm not living up to this. Well, it, you can if you sing it. That's the deal. <laughs> I'm not. Nah, I did not do the prep for this to dig my primary school song. The one I was thinking of is um, Choir Boys' Run to Paradise, which is a oh, song hello. that I really don't know the words to, but I I sing very emphatically. <laughs> you don't want blah, blah, blah. 
But I think it's something you could really use to um, get excited about wingers when they pick up the ball. So (laughs) (laughs) run Vanderhoovel, run Kate McCarthy. Or I'm thinking you could do something about don't tell me this is Pris Barkas. I'm just riffing. Clearly I did not do as much prep as you guys. Spark this on the run. Yeah, you could do it. I love it though. We can tweak those lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great tune. Also, yeah, you've just inspired me to go listen to that and send it straight to the top of the charts. And so once again, you're an influencer. This is how it starts. Anyway, I'd love to hear from people. Just those 40 songs, we've just got just to keep them strong and get people, get new bands to think it's cool to write songs about footy just for me. I'm their one audience, but I'll buy every album. I can guarantee you that. Any other final business? No, I think that's more, <laughs> more than enough for one day, really. I'm exhausted from the primary school tune. <laughs> My only final business is if, if you have found AFLW trade to be so fast and furious, it's impossible to keep up. Uh, one Julia Kira is doing an amazing job on the Art of Sanctum Insta. <laughs> and I feel like every single day I'm just like whipping through the stories, but there's also like sometimes little musical gags in there. <laughs> You've just got to get in there. It's extremely specific content for me and I love it so much. I'm get laughing face emojiing mm. that like nonstop willy-nilly. And also friend of the pod, Gemma Bastiani, has written some very thorough pieces about how your team has gone because to me I was like hang on do Richmond even exist because we hadn't been talked about at all but if you feel like that about your team and it's not just all about Hawthorne you should get on the AFL women's website and check out Gemma's work because yeah it's going to heat up soon pre-season baby I can't believe it but we can soon scurry over and just fly past this masculinity stuff just get straight back to AFLW season 2022.2 can't wait. Uh, there's only one thing to say, and it's not run to paradise. It is go, go, go footy. footy. footy.